0: I do appreciate that like i told you to stop talking because what you're talking was relevant to the show but then once you stopped talking i just spent 10 minutes screaming at you about my stuff so like you were like telling me about your life and i was like no yaron we must talk about this in the show and before we do that let's let like, hear hear all of my like emotional baggage from the last four weeks
1: i mean that's always how it is with us you tell me like there's a time and a place for your story but first let's talk about my story <laughs> Like yes. I'm I'm I'll I assure you, your time and place will come. It's not here yeah. and not now.
0: <laughs> you know what? Patience is a virtue, Yorum. Like this is the... I'm sure I got told this a lot when I was a child. <laughs> um Welcome to Plants and Puppets. This is a podcast where we talk about plants and especially molecular plant biology and all things that we love about this world. My name is Tegan and that is Yorum, who needs no introduction from himself. I'm gonna introduce him instead. He's a young man. <laughs> Very pretty, big beard, things like that. <laughs> sorry, go to <sorry. laughs>
1: Yeah, hi. Um, it's good to talk to you. We've been off for a week because we yeah. we were busy with life.
0: And stressed. Like the last couple of weeks just I mean, for me my MacBook broke, which is was quite upsetting. <laughs> I mean, especially being in lockdown now again and then not having my computer and not knowing how long that would take to get fixed. It's all fine now. Everything's fine. My data's there. Everything's good, but wow, that was stressful. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's like your your last thread, your last connection to humankind and yeah. that breaks. Um, I mean, I
0: have a phone, so it's not like super dramatic, but it does it did feel like Yeah. This was my weekend plans. This was my week plans. Like this is <laughs>
1: <laughs> This was my life.
0: <laughs> my world is already very small. Why are you making it smaller? Why? Yeah.
1: yeah yeah and uh, i i I had work stuff um like um, a meeting my first digital retreat um which i have to say was quite nice and i would like to have more digital retreats instead of physical retreats Do you mean Uh, a
0: conference is that no like it it was just like
1: internal thing within our like work group um where usually they would go to a place and have like like we did in our old place um Go to a place, have meetings, have some like fun activities, and um, yeah, spend two or three days focused on work. Um, and this time, we obviously did it all virtually, and we simply um, yeah had some some interactive things, some some talks, uh, but only until like three in the in the afternoon. So that was actually quite nice. And then you didn't have to stay away from home with your colleagues in a youth hostel somewhere, yeah, um, but you could sleep in your running, own bed. Right? Yeah, so that was good. Um,
0: yeah, I have a, a virtual Christmas party coming up um sometime in the middle of next month, and I'm I'm not really sure how that's going to work. I mean, they're doing like um, quizzes and escape rooms and stuff like that, but it's it seems very hard to believe that a virtual. I mean, the, the, most of the benefit of the virtual Christmas party is that you get to go and like dance to live music and be in a place and you know eat fruit and food and alcohol that's provided by your your bosses. So it's a bit of a weird concept. Yeah,
1: do you um, all get like a box shipped to your home with nice food and drinks? We do, but
0: the the partner of my housemate does, so I'm a little bit jealous about that. That seems like a good scenario to get. Yeah, yeah. no, I think our company is just too large. Um, it's many, many thousand people. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's it will be a weird season um and speaking of christmas i also i'm uh the story that i will now take the time and place for um that i wanted to say is that we want to have a christmas tree but um christmas tree in uh, having a christmas tree involves killing a christmas tree like you have to go out there you have to hunt it it's dangerous and so on but in the end the tree is dead and you just put it up um for it to like to display its death for a couple of weeks and then you throw it out And while I like to have the tree inside and like the smell, I like everything about it. I don't like the idea that I'm just killing a tree for my own amusement that grew for like seven years. And then it will stand for six weeks in my apartment and I will throw it out. Um, So I found that there's a place, at least in Berlin, I think also in other places um, where you can rent a tree. They they grow them in, in pots and then they ship them to you. Like they they, they are delivered to your door, you put them up, you give them water every day, they they are still alive. And then after eight weeks, you return them and they put them in the ground and have them grow to a full-size tree in a forest somewhere. And because they have about a 60% chance of survival because of all the transport, they also plant an additional tree next to it um, to sort of make up for the losses that they have overall in the thing. Um, But yeah, that's something that I will try out, I guess, this year. I'm
0: just, I'm looking this up on for London and there does seem to be options, but the, the first site I've gone to, they've already sold out for this year. So mm. obviously many trendy people were ahead of me on this. Yeah. I, I think also possible. the
1: delivery thing is something that is appealing to people now that you don't really want to hang around with crowds um, picking up your tree.
0: Mm. Yeah. Cool. Nice idea.
1: Yeah. So um, for if you, the listeners, yeah. Um, here for about this for the first time? Maybe it's something that's available in your area, and maybe it's something you want to do. I saw like one thing, one place that was like really expensive. It was like around one hundred and fifty euros, Ooh, um, that's but money. like full service with like they deliver it and pick it up, and very easy. Um, and but I found another one that's like a third of the price, so um I, w- I will try that one.
0: Yeah, these these ones here before they were sold out were like thirty five pounds for a three and a half foot tree, like one meter tree, one and a half meter tree. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
1: not bad. So then I haven't had a Christmas tree in ages. I don't know. Do do you, you don't really have Christmas trees in Australia, right? Because there you don't have firs and pines. You, I mean,
0: so (laughs) we can grow them and we have kind of our own sort of like um, similar looking trees. Um, a lot of people just do Christmas because it's also like 45, de- uh, like fake trees, sorry. So it's it's also 45 degrees over Christmas. So it gets um, very, very warm. Yeah. And the tree would die quite fast. My parents always used to bring a tree in, like something in a pot in from outside. So it always looked not at all like a Christmas tree. And that was quite fine. I thought that was actually quite charming. Except one year, my mother insisted on bringing in um, the this thing that she'd cut off, a pincushion hakea, which is a native Australian plant. And those plants have a defense mechanism, which is that they release these very fine, like, it's basically fiberglass. They release these very fine spines. They get in everything. And as a child, I would run around a lot. And I had told her before, like... I have rubbed up against this tree and I was itchy for days. Please do not bring it inside. And she was like, ha, 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 you're so dramatic. You're always itchy, blah, blah, blah. And brought it inside. (laughs) Itchy Teagan's
1: complaining again.
0: Yeah. And then, (laughs) I mean, six weeks later, all of us are like, why are we still itchy? Oh, yes, that's right. (laughs) We brought the itchy (laughs) tree inside. So that wasn't great. But um, usually we had like a native tree or something, again, that was in a pot and was still alive or something where it was like a pruning. So the tree was still fine it was just a branch it's, Yeah.
1: i imagine now bring like stinging nettle or something in, in my home and just being like yeah
0: it basically was that we, we, you know I mean?
1: we're decorating that now without gloves so everybody have fun <laughs> touching the stinging nettle um i told then, you
0: not to touch the tree
1: <laughs> especially with a small child that's a lot of fun to have in, uh, have around but yeah, no, I, I think um, I th- the other benefit of having a live tree, apparently, according to the things I read, is that they don't drop their needles as much because they are alive. They don't die and drop the them fun? slowly.
0: That like you try and move the tree out of the house and it's just like, I'm not <laughs> leaving. And it just like scatters itself on the way out.
1: And like, you, sh- you still find pines until March. Yeah, I, it's it's part of some fun. It's not the main reason I want to have a tree, though
0: this makes me want to send you like one of those surprise um
1: glitter bombs letters
0: yeah like a glitter bomb but with pine needles instead where it's just like and then there's pine needles all over your your house (laughs) it can be like you know that people were using glitter as the the way of explaining coronavirus like Mm -hmm. you're crafting with your friends and one of your friends has is using glitter how many of your craft projects use glitter and this was like a good idea of understanding contagion (laughs) and other things (laughs) Yeah, yeah, glitter
1: is great for that. My favorite glitter thing is the glitter bomb built by Mark Rober for package seath. I don't know if you've seen; like, it went no. viral a couple of months ago. I think you've built twice. Like, he built a box that looks like a real Amazon package. Left it in front of his porch, and in, in US there is people who steal things off their porches, um and so when they open the thing, it has like a rotating plate essentially filled with glitter with a, like the mm-hmm. finest glitter you can get. And so wow. it, it, like, spins up and throws the glitter everywhere. Um, but
0: also on his porch then, right? No, no.
1: When they take it home or in their car, wherever okay. they open the package, then it immediately mm-hmm. is activated. Then there's, like, four wide-angle cameras in there that film the whole thing and uh, stream it or, like, upload it to the cloud. And then there's, like, um, fart spray that smells really terrible oh my that's gosh. ejected. So they throw out the package again and then they can come and retrieve it because it has, like, actual value electronics in there. Um but um yeah but uh, there are some spectacular videos of the thing just uh spraying the glitter just everywhere um and then you hear like the thieves screaming like oh my god what did you bring in my house um so yeah that's my favorite glitter story do we want to uh, talk about plant stories next
0: we could talk about plant stories i think that could be done <laughs> favorite plant so today i'm talking about my favorite plant and i think like people often sort of talk to us about the fact that or i mean it's kind of a discussion that comes up that a lot of the time when we talk about plants we tend to actually be talking about flowering plants and really focusing on these angiosperms so anything that has a flower because in fairness like they are what dominates the world like most of the time when you look at a plant it's a flowering plant even if you don't see a flower it's probably going to flower at some point um but we often ignore some of the, you know, simpler forms of plants like the, um, the bryophytes. So, you know, hornworts, liverworts and mosses. So today I thought I would do Spanish moss as my plant. And Joram, do you know anything about Spanish moss?
1: No, it, it, it sounds like something you would buy to um, when you have a cough and you need something to your throat. Um, but I think it, like we have a brand here, like a local cough drop brand. It's called like Iceland Moss or like Icelandic moss. Oh dear! Maybe that's why I think of that.
0: This sounds like German magic drugs. Yeah, I mean, um, it does yeah.
1: nothing. It just it's probably like just like a sugar pill that makes you forget that you have a cough, but.
0: Um, <laughs> anyway, the reason I'm feeling, like, pleased and smug with myself is because Spanish moss is actually uh, something called a moss. that is absolutely not a moss. It is, in fact, an angiosperm again. It's a flowering plant. It's a monocot. So it's kind of in the same group as, like, grasses and stuff. Um,
1: Bamboozled again.
0: Yeah. And it's, I think probably a lot of you would have seen it. So it's one of these air plants Um And it's something that kind of hangs from a hook or a ceiling and looks a little bit like a scraggly beard so it's it's quite common sort of in you know hipster coffee shops or you know in in your hipster friend's houses I would say and yeah you can also see it in the wild but I'm not sure not not around here i would say it's it's originally found in mexico um central america south america north america um this kind of area and it's now naturalized to a few other places in the world including australia but also like french polynesia and stuff like that
1: i think i've seen so, it in a botanical garden like you sort of walk underneath curtains of these this this plant that hangs down from some branches and in, in one of the greenhouses that they have um
0: I think like my favorite thing about it, obviously, is the fact that it's called Spanish moss. And firstly, it's not it's not from Spain, so that's complete. It's as I said, like from like North Central and South America. Um, And secondly, it's not a moss, Um, so that's a lie. And thirdly, its scientific name is Tillandsia, and then the the species name is Uznioides, and that's because it resembles Uznia. But Usnia is in fact a lichen, so it's also not really like Usnia either. So it's like the Spanish moss called like Usnia, which is neither Spanish, neither a moss, nor really like Usnia. And it just seems to be like smug. I would say it's a really smug moss, which is not a moss. Um, yeah. <laughs> how, do you know like how it ca-
1: how it got the name? I mean, why would it well, get? I mean, the looks like it looks like. I mean, that's fine. I mean, it, it, it's we, yeah, it looks many like Usnia, like, like, so yeah.
0: Yeah, it looks like so this it looks like this kind of um lichen which is you know a bit of a frilly lichen and it's it's got a similar look to it it's just completely like it's a different kingdom, right? So so lichens are like fungi with these algal symbionts usually. Um and this is in fact a flowering plant. Um the but other thing why moss,
1: well, like do you, does it, it have any moss like properties? Is it like very wet because it looks very dry from the pictures? Um it's not like the damn wet moss that I imagine.
0: I guess it doesn't look super mossy in the the moist way as Yoram is describing. But if I did see it and didn't see it having flowers and had to guess, I would probably put it in the moss or the lichen family just because it doesn't... You know, it's also... The thing is, it also grows on trees. So it's an epiphyte. It tends to be like hanging off another, another tree. And yeah, okay, some orchids do that as well. But often when you think of, you know, things growing on bark, you do think of mosses and lichens. So I can see where... I can see where it's coming from, in fairness. Yeah. Um, the, The other thing I think is quite cool about it is that it has a lot of uses. So historically, it was used basically because of its spongy and insulating properties. So it was used as insulation, as mulch, as packing material, to stuff mattresses. Um, It was actually used, like, in the early 1900s inside car seats. So that was kind of if you're driving your car, you're sitting on some Spanish moss, which I think is is cool, Um, to the point where in the 1930s, late 1930s, there was over 10,000 tons of Spanish moss produced, like, used for production basically so it became quite an important thing and nowadays it's not really got those uses obviously we've developed some slightly you know more effective things to do there but this was like the original insulator etc and um if you look at the wikipedia page you can see that it's got this kind of sponginess to it so there's a, an image of it under magnification you can kind of see that it's got like quite like big trichomes and it, it's it will absorb water right if you put it in water and it's got this kind of sponginess so one of the other things that it was used for was like a cooler so you soak it in water and then as it cools um as it dries out you get this evaporative cooling um so it's it's both insulating and making evaporative cooling so it's kind of um like a mini fridge basically yeah
1: really cool it makes like i've there was one fancy like concept startup car thing that had as their main air conditioning unit. They had, I don't know if it was Spanish moss, but they had like a similar plant-based spongy material in there that was it was dead, it was not a live plant anymore. But it was used exactly for that so that they had something that would absorb moisture and release moisture to um adapt the climate within the car. Because then you mm-hmm. like, within the small confined space, this sort of buffer of moisture helped to have like optimal air conditions in there um so yeah it's the, i wonder if if these things will make a comeback as a f, f, to be used as as sort of this packaging material or for air conditioning and so on because i mean these things were probably replaced by plastic derived products like um like um like yeah plastic sponges and so on um, but now we know that these are not great for for the environment and so could that be a uh, sustainable alternative? That
0: like we, we are seeing some of that kind of stuff happening. So I don't know if we've talked already about loofahs on the podcast, but it's actually this kind of cucumber-like um, plant. And then as it dries out, you get this very like skeletal thing, which is like a, a, a sponge, a loofah. And people are starting to produce these again to wash bodies with or wash plates with as an alternative to using plastic sponges. Um, I'm not sure in this case we also see the thing where you have like nature inspired products so there's like a development of something that is made artificially but it's you know got the mm-hmm. ideas from cool nature and natural innovations yeah Um. there is like a bad side of that as well though so often I mean we just consume so much at the, at the moment so often if it is a natural product you tend to get overconsumption. so I mean with a plant maybe it's okay you can farm it quite easily Um, and maybe you know it grows without any bad carbon footprint or like methane release like cows, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the yeah. the end is. Um, the one final thing I wanted to say is that it has this uh, origin story based on um, it's, it's called sort of an old man's beard and it's, there's this origin story in which is called the meanest man who ever lived. And basically the idea is that there was this super horrible man, very wicked, very mean, the meanest man who ever lived. Um, and he, nobody liked him. Everybody hated him except for the devil. And the devil's like, okay, you're getting old now. You probably should die. So, you know, come with me. You know, you're going to come to the devil's place. And the means man's like, well, you know, I've got other mean things to do. So like you like meanness, you know, respect that. Let me do a few more mean things on earth. And the devil's like, all right, all right. I'll wait, I'll wait. And the mean man said, Well, seeing as we've got this mutual respect and admiration, I'm happy to come with you eventually, like I'm happy to die. But when when I do die, you have to warn me. I don't want you sneaking up on me. I want you to tell me before I die. But the meanest man who ever lived knew that he was going old, getting old and losing his eyesight. He was becoming blind and deaf. So he kept on doing his mean thing. And then the devil tried to like come up to him and say, hey, dude, it's time to die. Let's go. Let's, you know, get your crap together. We're leaving. But the man... He couldn't hear anything and the devil's like you know writing signs for him and flashing lightning in the sky like i don't know hiring planes to sky write, mean man you must die now <laughs> but the guy can't see and the guy can't hear so the devil basically can't break the deal and the wicked mean old man just gets to walk on the earth forever um and part of that is he just like he never dies so he just kind of fades away but his beard keeps on growing and as he walks through the earth doing wicked things his beard like gets trapped on different trees And this became Spanish moss. So he's kind of trailing through the world and like leaving wisps of his beard as he does his wicked things. And that's how Spanish moss was created. Which it's a
1: nice story. Apart from the fact that it means wherever you find this plant, it means that the meanest man ever uh, came came by and did probably some mean things.
0: I think that might be part of it. I think it's the fact that it is quite ubiquitous is is part of the story as well. That this guy kind of walked around being mean but yeah anyway I'm not sure where this um, so it's folklore but I'm not sure what the original tale is I I have here something that's like a Georgian folk tale um, but I'm not sure what the ultimate origin is so yeah but anyway um, that is Spanish Moss which is also called Zilandia Usenoides. it's neither Spanish neither a moss and it's not really that similar to Usnia so well done Spanish Moss for tricking us all Diversity in the
1: class. um yeah this this week it's me um and i have to say this is one of the times where I, I had no idea where to look and then i like i scrambled a little bit around on the internet and found um an interesting person and i was like reading the first bits um on on her wikipedia and was like okay yeah it's a standard biography grew up did science didn't do science anymore died um but then i <laughs> was I conti- a woman
0: while doing science
1: <laughs> continued to read and I, ca- I i found more and more things that made me fall in love a little bit with her so i i hope you will feel the same way when when we You're,
0: were- um, women women are not just there for you to fall in love with like, that's like <gasps> women are not just there to be the object of your male gaze and affection like we're not a plot point I mean, in your lives movie
1: obviously obviously that's what i meant i meant i i felt like <laughs> very i was just very aroused when i read her about oh dear her god stop <laughs> you started it no so i meant i have so much respect for her. i really really love the way that she did things so who am i talking about i'm talking about Tekla resvol um and uh, she is a norwegian a norwegian botanist and a pioneer in norwegian natural history education and nature uh, conservation um she lived from 1871 to 1948 um and uh so yeah her, her life began um or her, one of her first professional um jobs uh, was being a nurse in a very rich person's home Um, But from then on, she then um, went to university and began her studies. Uh, At the age of 23, she went to what is now the University of Oslo and uh, began her studies in botany, where she found a professor who uh, really much uh, liked the way she she worked. So they worked together through her her studies there. Um, And then after graduation from the university, six years later, she um, began to travel. She spent a year in Copenhagen, then returned to Oslo, where she became an associate Uh, associate professor in 1902 which i it doesn't say in the article that she was one of the first ones but i imagine there weren't that many female botany professors around at the time so that's already quite an achievement and from then she began traveling europe um and she was really interested in um alpine plants plants that grow in high altitudes at very low temperatures and so she went to to the region around munich to to zurich and switzerland and traveled around there and then uh coming back to norway in between um and so she then she used that uh, at the end she also had a child in that time but um she was uh, uh traveling a lot um with her husband she, uh, who was um, a mining uh, engineer and it says in the article that i read about her that they had a, a very strong mutual respect for one another another's work so when they traveled together um, her husband was really into her botany work and she took great interest in geology and the mining aspect of his career. So they were sort of this, this working academic couple that uh, traveled, uh, traveled Europe um, and were very much interested in each other's works. Um, and so in 1918, she um, got her doctorate with the work on plants suited to a cold and short summer. And that made her the first woman to have received a doctorate at her university. Mm-hmm. Um, and there it says that in, in her work, she presented studies on adaptations of alpine plants to the harsh environment. And um, these studies were based on meticulous observations of plant individuals, their clonal and sexual propagation, perenniation, and so on. Um, so the way they grow. And what that meant is that she was actually um, one of the very first people who ever do population ecology. Um, so pick a an, an single population and do ecological studies on that. And that was a field that didn't exist back then, yeah. that didn't have a name. Um, and she with her work, she was one of the very first people to ever do this without even knowing that that she was actually doing population ecology. Um, So that was very cool. Um, And through that, she continued then to work and to teach. Um, She wrote a school book that was used for uh, until the late 1930s in in Norwegian schools and so on. So many students who grew up at the time who went to school or university at the time um, learned from the books that she wrote. Um, But then that is like all of her academic achievements where she then also was awarded. uh, She became a member of the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, so she was also very distinguished for her academic work, which is all already pretty impressive. But then alongside that, um, she was a very... um, eager feminist and she was involved in many women's equality movements in, in, in or the main movement in Norway. Um she can I
0: just, just can I comment here. Um yeah. Joram has has notes on this episode and at this point in his notes they switch from English to French.
1: Yeah. Um because I realized that the French article, the Wikipedia article on her is so much better. Um it's actually one of the articles that has a little star on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I read that, and there were so much, so many more nice details of uh, in the French version of the article. Um but that's actually a
0: cool trick for doing this kind of first look at at research, you know, via Wiki. Don't just check the English articles; check yeah, check other languages. And Google Translate is pretty good these days. So
1: yeah, yeah, that's uh, especially like I don't know if if you know DeepL, it's like a web service um, that's based on machine learning, and the translations that it does is it's amazing like i've I've used it professionally um and i had to only do like minor corrections um like you, you drop in i think i had to translate something from english to german and was too lazy to do it by hand and so i just dropped it in there looked at the result and was like yeah i, I could not have done it much better than what this thing does and it also works from like for for many other languages including french so um yeah, if, if you see a little star on a Wikipedia article in a different language that you don't speak, check DeepL and translate it, and you'll get a very good idea of what's going on there. Um, and yeah, and there's often um, articles that are... Like, for example, for the Spanish monster we just talked about, I just still have it open. The Finnish article has a little star there. So it could be worthwhile to actually um, read through that as well. Um, but anyway, back to, to Tecla Resvol. Yeah. Um, yeah, she um, was head of the no- Norwegian Female Students Club and uh, was uh, serving on the board of the Women's uh, Suffrage, or suff- is it in English, Suffrage Movement?
0: Mm-hmm. Suffrage, yeah. Suffrage
1: Movement. Um, uh, and I try to, like, there's the Norwegian name of it. It's Künnestemreste mm-hmm. Foreningen. And everybody's joking about German's long compound words and no- Norwegian is just as bad. I just want to put that out here. <laughs> um, wow and um there in uh, in eighteen ninety six so quite early in her career before she began her studies or no uh, after she 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 was already studying, but um early in her career, she was the first um Norwegian woman who had her photograph taken wearing only pants with no dress oh
0: uh, we're okay. linking
1: to that, and um <laughs> I mean it's still um 19th uh, century clothing um but yeah she was she was not adhering to the standard um gender roles in the way she was dressing um she was also we- uh, wearing her head short throughout her life um mm-hmm. not so much she said to as a sign of protest but as a pure um embrace of practicality she was like um long hair is annoying i, mean, I imagine she was doing a lot of like field trips and being out in yeah. nature um And I guess also the hairstyles were much more, like, um, strict and tight on on the head. She said she had migraines and that the shorter hair helped her with that as well. Um, So out of purely practical reasons, she was wearing her hair short all her life, which was also not really um, the fashion at the time. And uh, another little fun fact that I found there was when she... um, found out that there is a men's she club that refused to let women join she just founded her own women's she club and then had like when sheing on uh, with uh, her women uh, her female friends um she also kept her maiden name even after marriage which was also uh, very uncommon at the time to be honest is still uncommon today whenever that happens today there's still you have to explain it all the time um
0: it's a discussion. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's
1: always like, oh, but but why? And I, I say that because I I changed my name and my wife kept her name. And um, so now whenever I talk about this, people are like, but but why? And don't you like your name? And like I have to explain that. But if we wouldn't have done that, then it would have been like, oh, yeah, okay. So she took yeah, your name. That's yeah. fine. Um, she was also… Um,
0: Good and right.
1: Tekla was also a big advocate for female contraception. Um, and she had a very close relationship to her sister. She actually went to, like, did a lot of research with her sister together. who was also a botanist. And um, a fun fact here is that her husband's brother um, later married her sister. So there were two um, siblings that were that married weird. to each other. I my, think-
0: my granddad and his brother married my grandma and her sister. And
1: doesn't it make family gathering so much easier because it's less different families set oh to together? Oh my goodness.
0: No, it's more chaos because like you're too involved in each other's life. And also like to me the thing is were there no other women? Was your like I know that there's not one person for everyone in the world and and there's many people who can be pos- but like did you just not look further than the sister of your your sister-in-law? <laughs> from
1: from what I from what I understand and it's completely like um, Um, pulled out of thin air here is. But I imagine like Tekla and her husband being rather progressive for their time. And I imagine that that is also reflected in their families. And so probably the brother of her husband was also more on the progressive side and her sister was also more progressive. And I imagine that when you then look for other partners that are equally progressive, it's much harder than to just say like, look, we actually like we hang around together because we have like... Our siblings are married. Let's get married as well because we like each other as well. But I, don't I mean, know. yes,
0: also. But on the other hand, my granddad and his partner were like expats in an expat community who were integrating only with other expats and not interacting with people who were not of their kind of people. So there's also that side of it. You can just also be quite insular, right? That your yeah. world is quite you know anyway um that's nice for her i'm glad they were all very progressive
1: <laughs> yeah i yeah i really liked reading about her and the more details i found um especially when she's like okay i'm gonna have my own club like if you don't want, want us here um i i will travel the world and i will do whatever i want um and i really enjoyed that so that's um tekla Resvoll, um living from 1871 to 1948 in norway and uh, Europe and all over the place. So yeah.
0: Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, 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 bias. 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 bias, 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 bias. Okay. Um, mine is less a cognitive bias as much as a um experiment I found out about, which is not in my field. So you'll have to forgive me if I go a little bit um out of my expertise here and it's also a little bit of an older study so it's from 2013 I read something very recently a blog post written by one of the authors so I don't think that there's been too much against this study since then but also it was written by one of the authors so maybe they just didn't state if there was any you know science that found out that what they found was wrong um but it's a research article that was published in the European Journal of Social Psychology back in 2013, as I said, by Barbara Navika and colleagues um, from the University of Amsterdam. And the study is called Uncertainty Enhances the Preference for Narcissistic Leaders. And I think this is all very relevant right now. Um, and it just, I wanted to discuss very briefly the the study and the findings and Basically, the, the core concept is that our perception of what we want in a leader is not very objective. It does change based on how scared we are and how uncertain the the situation is. So there's this, this these authors did a study where they were talking about the fact that like, narcissistic leaders we know that they have a toxic side they're arrogant they're like dominant they're ruthless and they have bad characteristics and they they looked at you know people's comments on how they felt about narcissistic leaders and we know that like narcissistic leaders can be bad but on the other hand they seem very bold and confident often charismatic as well and the thing about humans is that we're not very good at differentiating between like confidence and actual competence so if we see somebody who's like oh yeah i know what i'm doing we're like oh yeah, they must know what they're doing but actually
1: i have to say that is the main driving force of my cl- entire school career um like throughout high school there were so many times where i had no idea what was going on but i was always very confident and with that i could just like sneak my way through everything um because i yeah i could just pretend that i would know and then even teachers would think i would know and then i got through that i i mean it hit me harder in university where i actually had to know things so um, i suddenly realized like it doesn't get me anywhere or everywhere but it well, it
0: does get you all the way to university at least which is already quite a thing right yeah Mm.
1: But yeah, so I can. To- I'm totally behind the idea that we can't distinguish competence and um, confidence.
0: Yeah, so in their in their study, they kind of first did a, a a ground study where they wanted to see do people actually value a narcissistic leader over just you know a, a leader with normal traits that are not like overly narcissistic, so this is, like prototypical as a leader. And they found that like generally people are acknowledging that narcissism is a problem and they they prefer prototypical um, leaders in stable situations, but then when things start to become unstable, how highly they value the prototypical leader doesn't change, but suddenly the value of the narcissistic leader increases. So there's something about that confidence where when we're uncertain, we're more willing to make compromises, even though we're still aware that that there's, there's those bad toxic sides, we're willing to make some compromises. And then, um, yeah, they did a couple of extra studies, so studies two and three, and they found that like high narcissists are chosen more often than low narcissists. So like if you have these uncertain characteristics, you're choosing people who are just more narcissistic. And again, in all of the studies, the individuals were shown to be aware of the negative features of the narcissistic leaders, such as arrogance, exploitativeness, but chose them in times of uncertainty. So even though they know that they choose them because it somehow like balances out our personal uncertainty and makes us feel safe, even though we are mentally aware that this is a bad choice and that these people are exploitative and bad. And I just wanted to put that study out there. I'll link to it and I'll also link to the blog post um, where this author is talking about it. Um, and basically, it's, it's not a cognitive bias, but it is something where we are making choices that are not necessarily in our own best interest because I mean as we can see from COVID as we can see from everything like the choices they make are going to be make things worse for us so it comes down to us starting to judge people based on their actions and not just like the fact that they're confident and they're they seem you know that they can study us in this uncertain world. So mm. yeah, it's not really a cognitive bias, but I thought that was an interesting study that we change our respect for narcissistic jerks. I'm going to use the polite word jerks um, in times of uncertainty, and obviously we're in great times of uncertainty right now. So yeah. let's just try and keep a hold on this one, guys.
1: Yeah, let's let's try not to go for the narcissistic um, people right now. I mean we. Got rid of one very bad person already, in this is who's year. next. Um, I just hope that we won't see changes towards more um terrible people, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's just one of these weird things with the human brain, right? Like, we 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 value it's not exactly like stability, but people who take decisions, even if we don't fully agree with the outcome of the decisions, just the fact that a decision was made is something that at me gives me already also like a sense of, of sort of progression because like okay at least we got that out of the way at least we made a decision the decision is terrible but at least we made one and we can move on now and um and continue uh, and and that's yeah, that's linking again to
0: the that's linking again to this problem that we have always with science and with science communication is that in science usually you're not stating certainties you're saying you know our experiment shows or our hypothesis are supported nobody's saying like this is an absolute fact and you know it is true and that's always been a problem because it sounds less confident it sounds more uncertain even though it's actually you know better because it's done scientifically this is an issue that we have and then if you think well you know the more uncertain things get the more worried people get and the worse choices they make we get stuck in this this loop right and we don't want to be stuck in that loop that's a bad loop to be stuck in
1: it reminds me of the thing that you sent me i think today or that you i don't know i've seen it online i think you shared it on on instagram about um being a scientist just means reading 100 papers just to say like we actually don't really know what's going on yeah um and i mean that's it and, and that doesn't mean that we don't know anything it just means we, like we can rule out things but we can't with certainty say like it's a hundred percent of the cases it works like this because with so much evidence you also see some like edge cases where it's different and so you say it's not quite surely that just that one solution there's like some other things happening as well
0: and that's also an important thing about being a scientist being able to say that i'm not sure thing and you know, there's also different environments that allow that more or less, depending on how supportive and toxic the environment is. But, you know, if you're training and you're a PhD student, and somebody says, "What's the answer?" and you don't know, it can be very scary to say you don't know. But sometimes the reason you don't know is because actually nobody knows. Um, yeah. And. You know, in a supportive system that's encouraged to say you don't know, but in other systems that can be like, What why don't you know? Like, have you have you read all of the articles? Did you not see this article from nineteen forty-nine that's only available in, you know, my private library or so (laughs) Yeah, this is a whole nother can of worms, but anyway, when we're uncertain we like narcissistic leaders and let's try not to, and if you want a narcissistic leader, the really the best choice is Tegan. So if you if you really want to go down that path 20 I don't know when the next UK like election cycle I, I is have even no but
1: idea anymore do you still have elections in the UK I thought with brexit it's maybe turning back to monarchy'
0: the chaos um, yeah I think it will be
1: <laughs> monarchy or anarchy one of the two will happen in the next few years and
0: <laughs> all right fun stuff fun stuff this is where the fun this is where the fun this is where the fun begins, you, this is where the fun begins. for fun
1: Yeah. Uh, I wrote a story I found something um, one of the typical things where on Twitter people talk about something but without really mentioning what's going on and then I have to piece together what's going on what, like, what are they talking about they, they drop like some weird references and then I puzzle it together um, and luckily I found an article that helped me a lot figuring it out um, there's a controversy there's trouble
0: yeah there's trouble i mean i i i want to comment on the way you tweeted you sort of said can somebody just tell me the summary of this or something like that on twitter and i had to be like what are you talking about what's but i had heard about the controversy
1: i didn't mean yeah. that one specifically i'm the tweet that i sent was meant like in general because so often people on twitter they just talk about with like non-mentions and being like yeah vague about about and then like oh yeah you've heard about like the problem about the paper they just published is that and that and she's like what paper what are you talking about yeah, how can like, I just and we all know
0: saying? we all know that person does that thing and I was like what's the person what's the thing and then I spend like two hours and I just don't even know how to use Twitter so it's
1: yeah, it's a mess so I I, I was calling for more people writing like old school summary posts of trouble of on, con- controversies and beef and I found one that we're going to link that explains the whole story um, on thescientist.com so the controversies Controversy comes from a paper that was published in nature communications in November on November 17th. Um, so actually pretty fresh. Um, and there was a study where they analyzed, uh, or they were looking to, for a link between, um, mentors and mentees and seeing what impact that has on the career, specifically around the question of gender. So they were looking at, um, women who had male mentors or female mentors, um, and how successful they were. And they did that by looking at, um, I think, 3 million pairs that they analyzed from analyzing papers. 222 million papers is what they analyzed in their study. And they looked at the author lists and they looked at, uh, they had some criteria that grouped all of the authors into junior and uh, senior researchers and then they assigned, based on the first names, they assigned genders to um, these people, and then they paired them up. And then they looked if a woman has um, a male mentor, so a male senior researcher on the same paper or a female senior researcher, how well did they do in their career overall? And then they drew some conclusions on that. And the main conclusion that's cited all the time is that female mentors are actually a disadvantage for mentees Um, because they will result in less citations in the career. And actually, it's better to have a male mentor um, if you want to have a successful career as defined by a high citation count later on. This was in the paper. And a lot of people called that out and were like, this is not okay. This is not a good conclusion. They they, they called out many problems. And now it's at a state where the editor... Um, it's, uh, it's. I think it's not published yet, but they want to um, publish an editor commentary with the paper and want to closely look at it and sort of give it context sort of in the meta data around the paper.
0: Yeah, there's a note saying it's been investigated on the website. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that was the beef there. What do you think?
0: I mean, I can't comment on it from the editorial point of views, um, obviously, but... I think the the main concern that's raised here is that what they're looking at is actually not mentorship and that's very important so co-authorship is not mentorship um like the thing that immediately so i got sent this one morning I, i woke up and my friend had had texted it to me like on the 17th um and the immediate thing that came to my mind was like well when when i was going through science everybody who had the power was male so if i had a female mentor then that person would by default have less power than a male mentor like i I could not find a a female mentor who had as much power as a male mentor so (laughs) that would mean that by by that logic yeah of course it would be more beneficial for me to have a male mentor just because it's more beneficial to have a mentor with more power um but that's not the real problem here the real problem here is that they looked at co-authorship and not mentorship and that yeah. obviously,
1: yeah, from all not the mentor the programs thing. that I've seen, usually the mentor was by by design chosen to be outside of the research group, so very unlikely to actually end up on a paper together. Um, from from all the things I've seen, you would have somebody that's from a different field but advanced in their career, and they would mentor you. And so, the people you are on a paper with, they might happen to be be a little bit of a mentor role but i think in most cases from my anecdotal evidence there was no real mentoring happening there there was like professional collaboration happening
0: yeah and i think like from from my personal experience in this like i was on a paper that had like a lot of different methods used there was a lot of senior male authors on my paper and none of them were my mentors right so there would have been like maybe 10 at least male authors who had more seniority than me, but none of them was mentoring me in the way of like supporting my career and, you know. But I mean, so like mentorship in itself can be a bit, like it's difficult to define. It's definitely, this is not the way to define it, this co-authorship. But there's also a study that I want to kind of raise here, which is the Harvard Harvard Business Review published something in 2019 by Herminia Ibarra. And you guys might've already seen that because it's also doing the rounds in response to this. And it's called, A Lack of Sponsorship is Keeping Women from Advancing in Leadership. And the most important thing that comes up here is that mentorship is not the same as sponsorship. So basically, mentorship is like giving information and guidance, but sponsorship is actually somebody who will trade their power, use the power they have to help advance you, to give you an advantage. So in the way it's worded, let me just see if I can find yeah, while a mentor is someone who has knowledge and will share it with you, a sponsor is a person who has power and will use it for you. And this to me just sounds like a lot of people are going to explain stuff to you and be happy to like tell you stuff, but actually helping you out is not so common. And I think that is like, this is separate from the paper because again, that paper was not looking at mentorship in in this in even like the old school way of defining mentors. But even mentoring is just not enough because like, you giving me your knowledge, it doesn't mean anything unless you also help me yeah. get to power. And yeah, so that leads on to a few other ideas. So I also saw a nice blog post on this. Um, it is actually on um, a nature community, the microbiology one. And it's from a, a, a male who's talking about men in global h- health um, need to like lean out, this idea of like making space for... Um, non-white men basically so women and people you know from diverse backgrounds and I mean at the the bottom of it this person has kind of a list of things that they've tried to do to lean out to create more space so you know making sure that when they are invited to panels there it's not a mantle it doesn't have only men or even declining to accept that invitation and saying hey don't invite me how about you invite this person from a different context which is lacking in your panel right now um uh, and then the the thing that was also linked out from here which i think is really important is that this this person has written that when they they write letters of recommendation they're very careful about how they they word those letters of recommendation and i'm not sure if we've talked about this before we probably have but there's this there's studies that show that when people define women or describe women in a professional setting, they often, for example, use words that are more indicative of like caring and nurturing and like, whereas like when they define men, they're like, oh, competent and, you know, skilled and he's a leader and he's aggressive and like, you know, I don't know, maybe not aggressive, but we're just used to using vocabulary for women that is sounding, it's not really that professional, that language, and it also... Is not seen as desirable so i also want to include a link here which is from the arizona university the university of arizona sorry um and they use these studies that show that there's this bias in the way we write letters of recommendation for women specifically and they sort of talk about what we're doing wrong and how we should correct it so for example they say Letters of reference for men are four times more likely to mention publications and twice as likely to have multiple references to research than those to women, which seems Mm -hmm. like ridiculous. Letters of reference for women are seven times more likely to mention personal life, which is not even relevant in your life. So it kind of brings up all these problems, like the things that we do in the context of these studies. And then it's like, now, you know, the problem, maybe just don't do it. (laughs) Like,
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's also that's one of the main criticisms that of, of the paper that started this, this story today um, is that they the end conclusion to the very systemic problem of discrimination and the bias against women, like even like citations is, is not the best way to define success, but you see that women on average get less citations. Um, and so this systemic problem, their solution is, not to have female mentors instead of saying like, look, we have to address this as a systemic level. We have to change the way we uh, value female researchers and we help them to advance their career. Exactly what you said, like the things about recommendation letters, about getting access, about inviting them to talks and so on. All of these things are more important than the call to say like, based yeah, on our so statistics, think- you should not have a female mentor.
0: So I think that's that's the point is like when you do have these like there's nothing wrong with the like I don't think anybody said that the conclu- the the f- not the conclusions like the facts are wrong as far as like what they found with the methods they use. And this is just applies for everything. We have to contextualize the conclusions made, and like this is true for all science. And this is something that I've I've been learning a lot about recently, especially in the context of um, like human health research, um, but also any kind of sociology research. You can't like just have that as a pure number. There does have to be a context because unfortunately we do have context, and that's leading to like biases. So it's not enough to just be like, oh, look at these are some numbers. You have to sort of say why and have the people with the right expertise looking at that um yeah, yeah. so i think that's something i'm not sure I'm, I'm i'm curious to see how this goes through because it definitely created a bit of a, a buzz it definitely and i'm not did. and again there doesn't seem to be something like this the the calculations they made don't seem to be wrong as far as i've heard it's it's more about like yeah I, can, I can't really judge on that i've, I've, like, I've, I've heard things I in both directions
1: yeah. People saying like these, this is like standard methods in the field, and others uh, from outside the field being like, ah, these are stupid methods. So I have no idea. I assume that from the methodology, it's it's fine, um, but the conclusions is where I see the biggest problem um, because that's not really, yeah, that's not really first of all a good advice, and also not really what, what they were looking at. Um, the fact, the fa- uh, yeah, as we said a couple of times, they didn't look at mentorship. But anyway, so let's talk about something positive instead. Um, it's already a little bit old news now because I assembled this these news last week. But um, we have more vaccines for COVID. Um, we Yay. like we talked already in the last episode about the first one that was published with like 95 percent um, efficiency. There has been a second uh, RNA vaccine um, that where uh, there were a, p- a PR statement, and I'm saying PR statement because as far as I know that. Um, no vaccine has gone through peer review and proper publication yet but very promising third phase trials um so we have two of that and by now we even have a third one that has around like a 70 percent efficiency from what i've read so we have it seems like something that we were like the
0: german one and then there was the u.s one and then there was was a russian one and then there was the u.s one and now there's like the British one as well, maybe?
1: I don't actually know where they're from. Um, I'm not t- enough of an expert to re- ex- be able to judge the, the vaccines and their quality. I just know that there's differences in the some of the handling things. The German one has to be handled at minus 80 degrees for, for transport. Otherwise, it will okay. degrade. And that's hard to do just logistically. Um, I mean, we do it in a lab all the time because we have big containers of liquid nitrogen. But if you want to ship vaccines throughout many countries to many different places and have them not degrade on the way, it's logistically challenging. Um, and the, the US vaccine, as far as I understood, um, can be handled at uh, much higher temperatures, up to, I think, four degrees Celsius um, because they developed like their own pri- proprietary um, stabilization technique that, that mm. the thing doesn't degrade. Um, and my main takeaway from this is something that we we were very unsure of in the beginning of the pandemic is whether we could actually have a vaccine, whether it was actually possible to be immunized and to have something that works. And from the fact that we have now several things coming up, um, it seems to be not just a fluke, not just like one, um, trial that by, by chance looked positive, but will turn out to be negative, having now three or four things in parallel that all look promising, tells me that there is some reason to be hopeful that we will have something soon that will actually work that will actually give some immunity and will slow down stop the spread or help us to even return to sort of pre-2020 levels of interaction in society
0: i mean it's it's honestly impressive if you think like when humans are hell-bent on doing something it can get done that's just very impressive and Like, to see that used as a force for good is really, really beautiful. And hopefully that can continue in, in many different avenues in the future. Like, it's, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Well done, humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did it.
1: I mean, I'm, it's still 2020. Shut up, yo. So yeah. Shut up, it's yeah. still, <laughs> I just
0: don't oh! want you to jinx
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> Let, I let's start recording on first of January 2021. Then everything will be good again.
0: <laughs> I have two possible segues. So I'm going to go with the it's 2021 first, and then we can go to the COVID one. Um, I saw this morning. I think it was by the Nature briefing. Actually, the the fact that CSIRO, which is Australia's like um, kind of scientific institute that's dealing with um, like applicable science. Uh, they saw a comet break up. You know, they they got video of this huge glowing green comet that broke up. We'll, we'll put the link in the show notes again, and it's really beautiful. And I was looking, I was like, wow, that's so wonderful. I saw something beautiful on Twitter. It wasn't just a hellscape for once. Like, good feelings. And then just like this voice in my brain was like, "Do you remember that book, Day of the Triffids? That's how that started, isn't it? Like, there was a comet, and everybody looked at it, and then they went blind, and then the Triffids took over the world." And that was just where my, my mind went with that, which was like, stop.
1: <laughs> Ever optimistic, Tegan.
0: Yeah. Um, the other segue, which is the COVID segue, is that there's a really cool tool that was, I think, developed by the John Hopkins Institute. Um, again, we'll link it. And it's COVID event risk assessment planning tool. I don't know if you've already played with this, Yoram, but it's basically using like, real-time data to look at the different risk in different areas. And it's mostly focused on the US, but you can also do it for some countries of Europe, although at a slightly um, broader scale than the breakdown in the US. And you can kind of, um, we have a slider tool to choose your event size from 10 to 5,000 people. And it tells you your chances, you know, know, COVID chances, how, how likely it is to get infection. If you go to events and I'm a little bit concerned about this because I do think people won't use it wisely, but I find it also fascinating from a data visualization point of view because no data on Germany. Yeah. There's nothing on Germany. There is the UK, but unfortunately yeah, Germany's not there. Um, but it's cool. It's it's fun to be like, okay, if I go to and they have all of the disclaimers like obviously if you don't if it says you get 90% chance of not getting covid and you go we can't guarantee you won't get covid. These kind of things, but it is really fun to play with. Yeah. Um
1: Yeah, but as you said, I'm I'm also afraid of people then not understanding the statistics and probabilities.
0: yeah then there's definitely a lot of like possibilities for hoax virus people here who are like look it's it's all pale yellow that means i'm safe but yeah
1: yeah or people that like drink just up to the allowed alcohol limit in cars uh, and, and drive a car and and like I'm I'm being smart, I'm being safe. Like I calculated how much I can drink so I can still drive. And then like, no, it's not
0: like Yeah, and I think the big problem I see here is that it goes up to event sizes of five thousand. So then like if you go to five thousand, everything turns red or like dark red, which is like danger danger. You're basically gonna get COVID if you go to an event of, of over five thousand. But I think when you see that dark red and then you start being like, Well, okay. You know, dark red, 100% chance of getting COVID is, is 5,000. But what if I only hang out with 100 people? And then you see that the colors change to, you know, a more orangey, safer color. And then you feel the orange is safe, where it's like, it's still not great. Like, still don't, now is not the time for partying with your 499 closest friends.
1: <laughs> you um, just like send someone out of the door and then it's like, now we're safe. <laughs>
0: well it's just like because humans have that thing where we like have this relative risk thing where you know if we see really high risks we're like well you know relative to that really high risk this is actually pretty good yeah. um yeah but it's it's really fun to play with it's yeah that's i enjoy true. looking at it
1: uh, yeah I, that's something that i also have to say like there's so many um cool data visualizations and and Things where you can explore data in a in a different way than what you usually do coming up now, um, so that's pretty cool. I mean, just stay smart about it and like don't draw conclusions that are above your expertise. And in the term in the field of epidemiology, I think it's above all of our expertise. <laughs> so um, just listen to what the experts in your country tell you, or maybe weigh that even against some other experts in other countries and. Just rather, like, stay on the safe side, please.
0: <laughs> yeah, stay home if you can.
1: Yeah. Um, now to something, like, not related at all to COVID. Or do you still have some COVID things? No more COVID. No more COVID. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we have the vaccine now. No more COVID. Um, I have a story about plants and um, something I found about um, how ma- how it is harder to grow plants on Mars than what the Martian wants us to believe. Um wait what I, uh, d- that wasn't a
0: factual documentary about I mean, from what What's i've heard, did name? you read the book or watch the movie the martian i watched the film
1: yeah i, What's I watched his name well.
0: um mark no matt damon. Matt, damon. matt damon yeah
1: yeah from what i've heard is that scientifically speaking it made sense what he was doing like it wasn't completely unrealistic but obviously um, i
0: don't think i could grow potatoes in my own backyard let alone on mars but okay <laughs>
1: i mean i grew potatoes in my backyard and they tasted very nicely i didn't fertilize them with my own feces um uh but but that's what ma- what um the the martian did but now there were experiments on earth where they wanted to see what you could actually grow on mars and they used synthetic Mars soil um based what? on the on the rovers um that are on mars that did Uh, elemental analysis of the composition of the soil you can recreate the soil on earth Um, and they did that and they saw that the closer they got to the composition that they got from the from the measurements um, the less likely was the survival of the plants they they started with some um, soil that is from earth from like volcanic regions that have a very similar composition than from what you we know from mars and then they went closer and closer to um the thing that they measured and yeah the closer they got the more the plants died and there's actually some compounds that are very ubiquitous on mars um that are very toxic to plants and so from if you just use Mars soil apparently um we don't have any plants that survive on it yet i mean now they're obviously trying to figure out ways to either adapt plants to this or change the composition of the soil somehow before being able to plant uh, yeah, any any plants on there but um, we can't just go there and grow potatoes that won't work
0: uh, guys <laughs> I feel like the take home message is like wow we're really lucky we have this pl- I mean it's not lucky it's evolution but like we have this planet where we can grow stuff Let's like try and keep that, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> Not
0: going to work so well on Mars. It's not
1: like, that you don't just need like any ground, any piece of dust, and you can just throw some fertilizer on it. You can grow plants. No, plants actually care very much about the soil that they grow in, and yeah. um, Mars soil apparently is uh, from all we know now. I mean, we don't, ha- we haven't sampled the entire surface of Mars, but from all we know now, um, it's it's not great for not plants. Great. <laughs> plants i really like it um so yeah there's a cool on science there's a cool article about it that we're linking um that also goes into the details of the the compounds that are problematic and so on and um so yeah we colonizing mars probably would mean that we also have to bring dirt from earth and um that's a whole nother technical challenge that we would have to overcome which would as you say would make me want to want to rather focus on not messing things up on here so we don't have to tra- travel uh, transport truckloads of dirt over to a different planet so we can grow some potatoes there
0: so this is um following up on i think something i commented on last week my favorite silly journal title i mean not silly but like fun title of an article well, that I found while trolling the PubMed looking for cool science that's happening. Um, this was published apparently in December this year. Um, My brain hurts in plant by Robert Calderon and it's called The Temperatures They Are A-Changin' How to Produce Biofuels in a Warming World and Yoram, can you tell me what that's a reference to?
1: No, I don't know. It's The Times They Are a changing. it's like a folk song, right? From Bob Dylan?
0: Bing, 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 bing! So yeah. I think it's a play on a Bob Dylan song. The times they are changing. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, well done, Robert. Thank you for <laughs> adding a little bit of joy to my search.
1: Yeah, uh, that's always good. Um, did you know that um, seagulls they they track us? I mean, you as a our resident person afraid of birds here in the in the podcast. <laughs> I'm. Yeah. You are like subconsciously aware that gulls prey on us Um,
0: i mean i'm just always vigilant to be honest
1: (laughs) (laughs) but there has been a research um, a a study where they tracked gulls in a city environment um, for for their behavior like where where would you find them when in the city and what they found was that they were always at the same times in the same locations and then they realized for example they were sitting on the rooftops around a a schoolyard um, about 10 to 15 minutes before the break would start, and then all the kids would come out and eat their lunches and so on, and would drop things. And then, when the kids would leave again, all the gulls would sweep in and eat the leftovers. Um, and they would do the same with like waste treatment plant and um, some other places where they track the time of day and know when there will be a good uh, supply of food there, and then they will. Um, sit and wait patiently until the coast is clear, and then they can swoop in and and get their food, which is different from their regular behavior i mean they they tend to go to different places during different times of day anyway, also like outside of the urban context, so they know in the morning there 's more insects on meadows, so they go where there 's grass meadows and then they uh-huh. pick up the insects there, but they don 't usually wait before the insects come out and then eat the insects they sort of come in at the exact time but for the human interaction they were always there already before the feeding would start so they would sit and watch and like slowly gather until there's a big crowd and then once the humans are gone and only the foods the food that fell down is left then they come in and eat that so they actively adapted to sort of uh, human life cycles and human like daily routines um to find the best sources of food for them
0: I think the ability to track time on both quite small, like, scales, like, daily, but also, like, on, you know, seasonal changes is, like, a really common and ubiquitous thing that a lot of organisms, like, really, even really basic animals um, have, just because it's so necessary. There are so many things that are changing based on, on these cues. And, yeah, if you're a gull eating a bug, you do need to know, and you can't just wait for the bug because then it's it's too late. So... Yeah, I think I, I think that's not too surprising. Like I've heard stories of cats. I mean, my my parents' cat who would like wait for somebody to come home before they came home. You know, like they know when it's nearly home time or they know when it's meal time and these kind of things. So I think that that makes sense to me. Yeah, especially when food is a stimulus.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm also I'm not surprised, especially that that gulls and and many birds are very intelligent. So um, it's not a big surprise. Um, but still fun to think that kids go out, have their lunch break and there's all the gulls waiting (laughs) patiently.
0: I see you put in the show notes, so not really seagulls. Is that, did you hear the, the latest, no such thing as a fish where they said there's no such thing as a seagull?
1: No, I didn't hear that yet.
0: Apparently there's no such thing as a seagull. Okay.
1: Um, then I have to listen to that and yeah, in the, in the paper they, or in the, in the work they just call them gulls, but, um... To me, as a non-native speaker, I learned it as the uh, uh, vocabulary seagull. Um, And so it was hard for me to just be like, wait, are there also like non-seagulls? And apparently, yeah, I mean,
0: it's... Okay, now we're also linking to a National Geographic blog which says there's no such thing as a seagull <laughs> but the first line is there's no such thing as a seagull according to certain pedants <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know I haven't read this yet um, I'm not sure which side they're going to come down on the argument but they don't seem pleased by the lack of seagulls Okay, I think that's a good way to move into our next fact. Um, Yoram just put an edit mark after he said, in the beginning we had our (laughs) together (laughs) and now it's just chaos. Edit, edit, edit. You're going to have to edit out the swear word now as well. (laughs) Um, Thank you. (laughs) Quack, quack. I want to just mention very quickly, I haven't really looked into this too much, but I saw that um, Ecology and Evolution, which is a journal, has a special issue out that is about... um, going to online classes for ECO and EVOL, which I think might be a bit different from some of the stuff we've seen earlier because this now deals also with doing like lab classes and, you know, non-inside coursework. So I think there could be stuff that would be worth looking into if you're interested in teaching or learning in these contexts. Um, but I also wanted to flag up because I was looking through this. I, I follow their table of contents. So I, I found this and I, there's a, a paper called DIY Ecology Class Transitioning Field Activities to an Online Format by Catherine Creech and Walter Schreiner. And at the top of these articles, there's a, always an, a bit of information about funding just so that you can, you know, check where the money comes from, That there's no conflict of, um, of interest. And the funding information for this paper is this, I'm going to read it out now. This paper is unfunded. The lack of funding for community college faculty is an important equity issue highlighting the differences in resources available at community colleges versus four-year universities. Almost half of all undergraduate students in the US attend community college, but majority of publications about biological education research comes from four-year universities, and then they have a reference. These four-year universities tend to be large, predominantly white PhD and master's degrees granting institutions with more funding available for faculty publications. The voices of community college students and faculty should play a role in the conversation about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting the transition to online teaching.
1: Hmm, that's... that's. Like,
0: rah, rah, rah!
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point to ra- to make.
0: And I have never seen anything like that in funding information before, so I was pretty, like... They put a politic, Like, a, a scientifically referenced political and, like, important political statement in their funding information, so well done, Catherine, well done, Walter. Yeah. Cool really cool uh just on that another one is uh, another paper that's in the same um special issue by laura mckinnon it's called yimby and yimby stands for yes in my backyard the successful transition to local online ecology field course but i love the idea of yimby so also well done to laura laura probably not laura
1: um yeah i have a, a last p- a plant science story that i want to bring today um before we Uh, close to show, move on it's not it's not quite the end yet but uh, anyway I want to talk about giant virus genomes Um, uh, there's a um, an article in the science mag that uh, we're linking uh, that's talking about um, gyrus virus genomes and giant viruses is something that are only discovered rather recently in 2003 so not quite 20 years ago
0: is it pandora
1: I, they don't say Pandora, I think, here, but there is um, these, the, the thing about these viruses is that you can see them with a light microscope. So usually virus particles are so incredibly small, much smaller than a cell, um, that, you can, that you have to use electron microscopy to get the resolution to actually see them. And even then, they're often very, very small particles. But giant viruses are big enough that they can actually be seen by a light microscope. Um, which is in itself pretty incredible. But um, what's even more incredible now is that since we knew about their, their existence, we find traces of them in more and more organisms because they, a part of, of virus function, is that they inject their own genetic material into the host cell. And then it's somehow activated, translated, expressed in the cell. There's different mechanisms at play there. But it means it it's physically in the vicinity of the genetic material of the host cell. And sometimes hosts can escape the virus infection and not really produce the virus particles. But still the genetic material is there and can be integrated potentially in their genome. And now they found that um, in some very common algae um, there is very large stretches of DNA there that's originally viral DNA. Um, so up to 10% of the genome of this algae um, is actually viral DNA that was integrated at one point and then just kept around and never really deleted because it was never a problem. And the thing with evolution is we tend to lose things in evolution that, that are detrimental, but the things that are not, not good nor bad they have a much lower chance of being lost. And so therefore they tend to hang around for a long time. And so in, we find them then as traces in, in other places. And so, yeah, that I just found that, that idea very cool that you have like these massive virus particles and that we can find traces of their DNA sequences in all kinds of um, other organisms that might've been once infected or some predecessor might've been infected with the virus and kept the DNA around forever.
0: I, I want to just follow up on BS smart and this, it's like Pandora virus is one of these genesis of giant viruses. And the cool thing I just saw um, both the Pandora virus particles and also Mimivirus, which is another one of these huge viruses were discovered. And when they were first seen, nobody thought they were viruses because as you said, they're just too big. So people... Like, so the mimivirus was, I think, must have been the first one because it was recognized as a virus in 2003. But it was actually described back in 1992 and just nobody thought it was a virus because it was kind of too big, I think. So, yeah, yeah. super cool. Um, okay, my, my final fact of the day uh, has nothing to do with plants at all. Um, it's conodonts, um, which is a thing that I want you to Google now, uh, I don't
1: even I don't even know how to spell it
0: as c o n o d o n t, and that basically comes from the idea of cone, and dont is teeth, like dentist. Mm-hmm. And the idea these these are um, old, I think five hundred million year old you know prehistoric organisms, and the the first evidence we had of them was their teeth. So what we found to start with is the teeth, and the rest of them seems to be largely soft tissue, so that has been a little bit harder to understand. And I really encourage all of you, again, this is a visual thing, but I encourage you all to spend some time at one point Google imaging conodonts. Yoram, um, can you explain what you see?
1: Terrifying little worm slash, eel slash snake creatures that have like these open mouths with um terrible sets of teeth in them and like there's like they're all drawings obviously i mean these things are extinct so the artists were very creative with the way they place all of these teeth and there's so many more teeth in there than you would expect in an animal to
0: be it just makes me so happy um because I think because the teeth were the first thing that people had, like the artists were told to really focus on the teeth. So every single artistic impression is this guy, like it's got huge eyes and it's just like, Wah! Like, it just <laughs> has, like it's mouth open, like hurrah, like raw. <laughs> it's just like this really expressive little dude. Um, yeah. I, I encourage you if you want to see something that doesn't make you angry and mad at the world, go and look up commandants because they're they're super, super cute.
1: It's like this <laughs> meme about um skulls and um what we would think if it would be an alien and we would rec- reconstruct it and then what it actually is and it's always like it looks like has like terrible fangs and so on and then it's a cat or um has like a terribly deformed head and it's a pug um or an owl or all kinds of like animals that we're very much used to but their skulls look so weird and if we just find a skull and then you sort of extrapolate from that you get these terrible monster creatures, but actually, yeah, they're pretty... Exactly.
0: The the take-home message is extrapolation is bad, children.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so no, so before we move on for real, um, I have one last shout out that I want to make. I found it on Twitter. Um, it's called Black in Science Communication. It's a, an account that just reached uh, 10,000 followers, which is really cool. And I had a look at their website, and what they're doing is is that they're collecting or they're they're building a network and they're collecting profiles of uh, people of color, black people, who are working in science communication, and they're listed there with their expertise, with the goal that people who want to find experts, want to know more about specific areas, they can go there and reach out to the experts. um, And and in this case, uh, black people that do science communication. And they have, I think, about two dozen people already in their list. Um, And I think projects like this uh, really benefit from more attention. And I mean, we are a small project ourselves, so we can't contribute a lot. But I I think it's good to know about this project. I would encourage everyone to spread the word, and maybe if it applies, if, if you are also a black person working in science communication, maybe that is also something cool for you to take part in. Um, but at the very least, um, spread the word. Also, if you are looking for experts, um, this is a good place to start looking during your research and uh, contact people there. Um, uh, so far, I think there's no plant people on there. Um, so that would be really cool to, to get some plant people uh in in this network so that's yeah there's more visibility for black people because they are underrepresented in uh, at the very least from my anecdotal ev- uh, evidence um that's uh yeah it's it's severely lacking to have these more diverse perspective also in science communication we say that all the time for sort of major like the main parts of academia but also science communication um is predominantly white and i think it would be cool to change that So yeah, link is in the description.
0: Yeram, have you got a cat fact now?
1: Uh, I do have a cat fact.
0: Cat (laughs) fact. goes on for a little bit too long, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I found something uh, on Twitter from Randall Munro, who is the writer and creator of XKCD and one of my favorite people on this planet, and uh he, you
0: don't know him personally though.
1: i met him once personally i exchanged well done like, yeah i talked to for 10 minutes with him about plants i was really cool um just an amazing person um and he says in his tweet that he sometimes likes to search for random words in a very technical document or in te- technical document databases and he found a 1996 nuclear power plant incident report um that's called Discovery of Four Slightly Contaminated Kittens at an on uh, at a San Onnofer Son of Nuclear generating station um and they found yeah four kitten on the premises that were very slightly contaminated, and then that um, the workers at the plant then nursed back to health and adopted them out um, and there's in the in the tweet that we're linking there's some pictures from a newspaper where you see workers from the uh, nuclear power plant with these kitten that are holding them all four of them in a helmet um very cute and the thing that made this story really stand out for me is that they named the kittens then alpha beta gamma and neutron which i think is are the best names you can give to uh, kitten that you find at a nuclear power plant and with that i think finally i don't know i
0: got distracted i was looking at kittens
1: i I (laughs) have to edit so much of this episode that (laughs) i have no idea how long this will be so i can't say like after this very long episode because maybe it will just be 25 minutes long after all my editing um so after this episode of indiscriminate length um i think it's time to end
0: um Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah so if you want to find more of our stuff you can go to instagram or facebook where you can talk to me which is at plants
1: on twitter you can talk to me that uh at plants
0: And um, we also have a website where we post things twice a week talking about like stories, blog articles, long form articles about cool things that we found in the world of molecular plant science.
1: Yeah, we have two articles that i I really enjoyed uh, writing and reading um this week. The first one, uh, I wrote something about sea slugs, um something that's actually, it was one of the very first sort of prototypes that we wrote for this project. I think we never published it um, about the initial research on on the sea slugs. I remember that it was one of the very first things that we wrote, and I found it on our like on our Google Drive. Hmm. Um, it was a it was a really big story when it first came out. Yeah, and it's these these sea slugs that have these they they eat algae and they keep the chloroplasts in their body and they stay green. And the idea the question was what why are they doing this like do they do photosynthesis do they k- just keep them for later what's going on there and there's been some new research that that i wrote about and you wrote a really cool paper about camouflage plants
0: yeah so it's a uh, um, paper story, sorry yeah, plants, um, it's based on a paper. Uh, plants which have a kind of different phenotype that's more or less good at camouflaging with their background. And the scientists found that they couldn't work out like what we're selecting for the camouflage because there's no obvious herbivore of these plants that would use visual clues. But this plant is highly valued in traditional Chinese medicine. And they realized that there was this intensification of harvesting the the plant for the bulb. And they could find a correlation between plants being more intensely harvested in a certain area and the remaining and developing populations becoming more camouflaged so basically human selection pressure is evolving these plants to hide from human eyes which is really cool as always please rate review us like us follow us subscribe whatever the things are it always helps um on all of the channels but definitely do leave some comments on the podcast if you want us to stop rambling and say better things yeah um
1: our opening and closing music is caravana by philip gross and just as a reminder all of the opinions are our own
0: and that's it we're out (laughs) goodbye good luck with the editing though.